0: Song. Let's all help the water. away. Do what we can and Let's start today.
1: Good morning and welcome to episode 764 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at baseballreference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of ESPN. Joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. The New York Attorney General has declared daily fantasy sites illegal gambling
0: mm-hmm. and
1: ordered them to cease operations in New York. So I don't know what to do with my day now that Have I can't you... do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was a big daily fantasy guy. You're uh, you're teasing, right? I'm teasing. <laughs> daily podcasts are still legal though, so I can continue to record.
0: You can you can if you want, you can still just scratch uh, scratchers while you're recording your daily podcast. It's like a, a hybrid.
1: <laughs> That's true. I wonder
0: if I'll be able to just
1: walk around and see other products advertised out in the world now in, when I when I walk so, around New
0: York. I, I will say this. I, I um I have been surprised to find out how much people value variety of advertising. Like yeah. Like it's all ad. It's not like it's not like TV stations added ad space for this. You were gonna get an ad. You were gonna get an ad for another product that you don't want and that you probably hate. Right. And I can see like I I that it seems I guess legitimate that the repeat would annoy people. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I'm surprised at how much it annoys people. Like it, I you get the feeling that people are like. If not for this, they'd be showing new episodes of The Wire.
1: <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, well, it's the same thing
1: that happens every postseason when we see the same seven ads over and over uh, and that's over again true. and they drive yeah. us mad. That's and a good point. some of those are for daily fantasy sites now, but they weren't in the past. But you're right. The opportunity cost is just another ad.
0: Yeah. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have anything to talk about? We're doing emails. Uh, no. Okay. All right. Ben says, I hate gold gloves, but I want to like gold gloves. How can we fix them? Then he has some suggestions. What if we allocated three per league to outfielders and two to middle infielders and two to corner outfielders? This would allow two great center fielders, namely the Kevins, to each get one and allow you not to have to pick someone like Cole Calhoun Same applies for middle infield in the NL. In this case, not shafting the best defensive player in baseball because the Braves sucked more than the Giants. You get both shortstops. Is there anything that they could do? And they've, I mean, they've changed the format. They've incorporated stats. They've switched around who's eligible and how many of these things get handed out. I think I have reached the point where I am apathetic about all awards. So I don't think there's anything you could do to salvage them for me. This year, it just doesn't seem like there's really a particularly interesting award race. I mean, there are close ones, but they all, all the answers seem fine to me. Like I don't, I don't really care if Donaldson or Trout wins the AL MVP. I don't really care if Kershaw or Arietta or Granke wins the NL Cy Young because they're all great choices and they can all be justified with good arguments. So I don't care, and I've just kind of come around to the idea, which I think Kevin Goldstein used to talk about on Up and In, which is that awards don't really matter because what happened happened, and whoever the writers decide to give the award to doesn't change anything that happened. So maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's that there's just no philosophical battle now. There's no, like, Trout versus Cabrera this year where it's almost like, it feels like there's something at stake, like a way of thinking is, is being tested. Or, I don't know, Felix Hernandez winning the award when he didn't have a lot of pitcher wins or something. It seems almost like we're past that stuff now. So I, I just kind of don't care.
0: Yeah, I, I, um, <clears throat> I, am, I look with, uh, with a, a, a moderate degree of interest. Mm-hmm. I don't not look. I'm I'm curious. I don't know why. I'm curious. I can't exactly. It's hard to avoid. Explain. Yeah, but I still do look. I mean, I click. I I click to see who's on the All-Star roster. Uh-huh. I, I I mean, I don't know. I don't know why I do. And so I'm I'm happy they exist. Uh but I also have uh I've grown largely unconcerned about who wins them um because um you know, like I think we we talked about one time if you if you wanted you could get a perfect group of people to get together and vote and get just the right results for you and for everybody and everybody would be happy except nobody would care about your awards mm-hmm. like like there are these award like like at BP we have the internet baseball awards right and ma- many people vote mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, some of us are interested in them and some of the readers are interested in it and that's good and the ball players don't care at all
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, so I don't know it just seems like um these things it, don't necessarily serve the purpose that you might think they do. I don't know what purpose they do serve to be honest. Mm. Why do we why do we do this?
1: <laughs> I I don't know. I, I know why writers do it so that they can have something well, to write about it, it and feel it's like it's important,
0: right? Yeah. Awards awards are a listicle. They're yeah. good. They're good clickbait. Yeah. They've always been good clickbait. They were good clickbait in 1914 or whatever when sporting news decided to publish these things in in newspapers Mm -hmm. and that's essentially what they are they're a way of ordering the world into a list that people can argue over and so i guess in that sense um as long as you don't take them too seriously they're they're good fun and if you do start to take them too seriously then you should probably uh be aware that you're falling into the uh into the clickbait model they've trapped you right. you are you've been duped mm-hmm. yeah to some degree and i've been duped plenty in my life i don't uh i don't begrudge you the duping mm-hmm. i've uh i've spent i've spent some time in my life being very <laughs> aggrieved about <laughs> what happened to johan santana uh-huh. in 2005 uh or about uh the uh, annual uh uh beating of the utley by ryan howard <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh And uh, so, I know, it's quite the temptation. It's the lure.
1: Yeah, and I don't know whether baseball debates in general have gotten less interesting. Probably not, but it seems like award debates or debates about who the best player is, is are somewhat less interesting because we all have so much data that we can draw on. I mean, when these awards were being voted on in 1950 or whatever, you couldn't look up... I mean, it was... It was hard to look up any sort of stats. Maybe you could look up end of season, you know, batting average or something and, but you weren't going to get probably even on base percentage. So like you just weren't going to be able to settle that by looking at a leaderboard in the newspaper necessarily, or at least you could make a really good argument that the leaderboard in the newspaper didn't reflect how good a player was. Whereas now we have. All of these different ways to answer that question We don't need the people who were At the games, covering the games To tell us who the best was Because we can all just look at the numbers And come to our own conclusions And those conclusions might be better Than the conclusions of the people Who are deciding Based on what they happen to see at the ballpark So, I don't know We don't need them anymore
0: I would just, I think th- oh, Okay. I, I would say more awards Would be good and less uh, discussion of them
1: <laughs> would be good. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like I would actually be happy if there was an award every day, uh-huh. and and I could click on it and go, oh, and the, then close it down.
1: The Jerry Krasnick poll of the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know. I I feel like they're uh, they are less interesting than ever before uh, because. Um, of the It's the same problem with the Hall of Fame where you, uh, to some degree, it's it's less so with individual awards and individual seasons, but there is a, kind of a problem where sorting by war is horrible and awful and also the only really justifiable thing you can do. Right. Um, it's You have much more flexibility to go beyond that in MVP voting, I think,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and usually there's a playing time aspect that you can debate in Rookie of the Year voting, and then there's the imaginary versus real of... Pitching voting, so it's not nearly so bad uh, in those, but it still kind of is. Like it's it, look, if I if you ask me to vote for MVP, I'm gonna have a hard time doing much other than sorting by war, mm-hmm. and uh, so that makes it. Even though I think that's a that's boring and dumb, so that that makes it less interesting. Yeah, and
1: you know you have to be careful about the fact that the defensive ratings are maybe less reliable than the offensive ratings, and they aren't regressed in war. So if you just sort by war and some guy shows up because he has a plus 30 defensive rating or something, you might want to be a little more skeptical about that than a guy who is the best hitter in the league. So there's that. But I mean, we're probably going to get to a point, whether it's, you know, once we've had several years of stat cast or something, and maybe we have more reliable defensive metrics that work in smaller sample sizes, then maybe we will get to a point where sorting by war is really the best answer that you can come up with, and at that point I don't know what else there will be to say. I don't know whether they'll ever just hand over the awards to the war leaderboard, because that would be extremely boring, but I I don't know what the alternative is eventually, once we get to the point that those things are really reliable. Mm. Okay, but you can can look at the Fielding Bible Awards, I guess, if you want to look at Good defensive awards; those will probably match your inclinations as a statistical person better than the gold gloves will. Still,
0: I uh, one last thing though. I do think that they add something when I look at a player's player reference, a baseball reference page. Uh, it it is kind of a nice, quick and dirty way of seeing how good a guy was, and it also is a kind of a nice, quick and dirty way of seeing the seasons that stand out the outliers in his career the, 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 the weird year where all of a sudden he was the MVP and uh, I would be sad if those didn't exist or if somehow they stopped existing so um, in that sense there there is like a kind of a great bold ink aspect to MVP voting and so on that I like yeah I guess
1: that's true although if Baseball Reference just replaced that with like their war ranking or defensive ranking or something would that be worse?
0: Um, I don't. Maybe I it would be. It's helpful to know
1: what people think of the it, it, player. It is
0: right. Yeah. It it is. It's kind of. It's like Don Baylor would be nowhere near the 1979 leaderboard. And yet, there's something nice about knowing. Yeah. Like that does tell you a lot about that season. Just looking at that. Just mm-hmm. looking at that little one little fact. One little data point tells you something that you wouldn't find just by looking at his war. Yeah, that's true. All right. In the spirit of two recent
1: topics, I did a quick check on the number of splash hits by a single player into McCovey Cove, and he includes that list. It is led by Barry Bonds at 35, and the second-place hitter is Pablo Sandoval
0: at 7. So, nowhere close. That's surprisingly small, that gap. You think? I, I definitely think. Yeah, I'm surprised. How, I guess, Well, I guess it's that AT&T didn't open until, I think, 2000. Yeah. So Bonds didn't play that. Uh, it, you, you think, wow, Bonds was way better and, and also played a long time. But I guess his first eight years as a Giant were not there.
1: Mm-hmm. And so he wants to know what will happen first. A Yankee sells more jerseys in a calendar year than Jeter. The Giants switch stadiums. The Giants leave San Francisco. Baseball ends, or someone overtakes Bonds and splash hits into McCovey Cove.
0: Mm, well, B is an easy one. The Giants move stadium. Well, no, it's not because they might they could be there for two hundred years. I guess how long will Fenway last? Uh, at this point, I I don't know
1: why he would ever. Not be at Fenway if you're yeah. if you're still playing baseball.
0: Yeah, and Wrigley basically like. Do you think if baseball is around in 200 years, they'll still be playing at Fenway and Wrigley? Yeah, I okay. think so. They've
1: they've shown that they can modernize it and and compete in this environment. And there's obviously some value to the franchise in having a historic park that everyone loves. So I would think now that they've gone this far, they'll they'll keep going.
0: And it's hard to imagine any. I guess it probably always felt this way about every new stadium, but it's hard to imagine anything replacing AT&T, any reason they would replace it. Right. uh, Unless there was an earthquake Mm -hmm. or a tidal wave caused by an earthquake. Uh uh, Or I don't know if it's uh, imperiled by climate change. It is on the water. Yes. And so I don't know how many feet the oceans would have to rise Mm -hmm. to, to ruin it. Right. Uh, so those would be conceivable threats. Did you read the New Yorker article about the Pacific Northwest earthquake that might be coming? No, but I, I heard people talk about it. So it's it, that, seems, that would be the biggest threat, uh, except that it seems like the effect of that would be mostly Sacramento and north. Mm. And so San Francisco would be just south of the destruction line. So I don't know how well they know that. Uh-huh. Maybe they don't. yeah. but that with that in mind, I will say that it is more likely through some combination of events or preference that they are not playing baseball there in a hundred years than that they are. Uh-huh. No one's to have someone pass bonds, you would have to have one of the two or three best hitters in baseball be left-handed and essentially play there his whole career and hmm. still maybe not get there.
1: Yeah, well, he didn't I mean, he didn't get to play there that long. He was obvi- I mean, that was the the yeah, greatest run of Yeah. of production ever, but he only got to play there what seven seasons or something. Yeah.
0: So like for instance, let's see. Carlos Delgado is on this list with 3 and I'm checking, but I bet Carlos Delgado didn't get more than 200 plate appearances there. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And so, if you imagine that a guy like Carlos Delgado could get three in, yeah, I would uh, think he'd have to have fewer. There uh, wasn't in as much as 54. 54. Yeah. Wow. That's well, he played in the NL for that part of his career. Hmm. Anyway, 54. So three and 54 at bats. It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously he wouldn't keep up that anything like that pace. Who else is there? Who would you think like? Larry Walker had one, but he was kind of old. Who who is the big left-handed slugger of that era in the NL? There really wasn't one, was there? Prince Fielder only had one in his time, but there's not a great comparison here.
1: Adam Dunn had one.
0: Adam Dunn had one. I don't know. I I guess 35 doesn't seem unbreakable.
1: Yeah. Well, right. If they if they just have to uh, sign or develop a good left-handed hitter and have him be a career giant and he'll break this record and
0: well he won't break it though he might challenge it but (laughs) he won't break it i mean it's hard to break it Uh,
1: i i well what percentage of left-handed home runs i mean i guess it's a very it's not just that you have to hit a lot of home runs you also have to hit them really far right i mean and
0: you have to hit them yeah and, and high enough
1: yeah so that's because it's a big high,
0: it's a big high wall.
1: Right. So it's not like you could. I mean, I don't know if they just like if they if they have a left-handed hitter who hits 300 career home runs or something, which is you know very good but not great. And he hits half of those at home or a little more than half of those at home, so say he say he hits 180 at home or something. I don't know what percentage of those would be splash hits, but to get the record, it would still have to be, you know, if he needs 36 out of 180, it would be he'd have to have 20% of his home runs go in the Cove, which I assume is a unreasonably high percentage.
0: Well, you might assume that. I would have assumed that, and I'm double-checking a couple of things. But um, it looks like uh, Pablo Sandoval, of his home runs at home, and remember, Pablo Sandoval, switch hitter. Yeah. And so a much better left-handed hitter than right-handed hitter, but still switch hitter. So he's essentially uh, priced out on some portion of his bats and some portion of his home runs. But seven of his 52 were splash hits, uh-huh. which is four, 14%. Uh, and and Brent
1: thought of as a guy who hits bombs,
0: necessarily. And Bran- Brandon Belt, four of his 20 our slash uh-huh. hits, so that's twenty percent. All right. So it does see, and well, let's see bonds. Yeah. So what were so bonds? How many did bonds, he hit though, at
1: home from?
0: I, I'm gonna look. In fact, should this, maybe this is I don't know. No, I'm using the play index, but we won't call this the play index. Okay. I don't have a good play index today, though. All <laughs> right. So I'm going bonds from 2000 to 2007. While I'm doing this, can you do a quick Google and make sure AT and T opened in 2000? All right. Yes. It so. Did. Okay, so Bonds hit 160 home runs at home in that era of okay. which 34. 30, so about 20%, 35, about 35. 20%, a little more than
1: 20%. Okay, were so we can assume hits. that uh, he hit them farther than, so, than your typical power hitter does.
0: But I I feel like 20% for a it's a small sample, but the Sandoval belt now Bonds examples Seem to suggest to me that twenty percent is a fair estimate for a left-handed power hitter, uh-huh. and if it is, then yeah, you need to. You only Basically need to a hit
1: a three hundred home run hitter.
0: Yeah, or maybe a four hundred home run hitter. Yeah, which is nothing. It's doable. Yeah. So all right, so I'm gonna say I'll now take Bonds. I'll take someone beats Bonds for all of these.
1: So you, no, no, I'm
0: going to take, take the jerseys Yeah, the,
1: yeah, it's got to be more likely that a Yankee sells more jerseys in a calendar year than Jeter But otherwise, switching stadiums, leaving San Francisco, baseball ends <laughs> Those all seem less likely than someone beating Bonds and Slash Slashets Yeah Okay, not a bad answer That was from Michael in London, by the way Who says that our good mornings on every episode are always confusing for him uh, Tom says, if Matt Harvey comes to spring training and has any sort of injury, there will be articles written about it being due to the Mets and him throwing his innings limit out the window. However, if he gets injured in 2022, these articles will probably not still be written. Should they be written? When is the soonest Harvey could suffer an arm injury and his 2015 workload not be discussed? At what point would you personally personally, not attribute a future arm injury to his 2015 workload.
0: Would you, let me ask about the premise. Would you ask, uh, would you personally assign the blame to the workload if it happened in spring training? I don't know. I, I, should I, we, should I, we lower the bar to if you had to write about this for your, <laughs> for your employer, right. ESPN? Uh-huh. Uh, would you uh, mention the workload Obviously, you would mention yes, the word. Yes, I
1: would mention it if it happened in spring so training. So let's
0: just call it mention the
1: word. Okay, right. and
0: mention it in in something other than the ironic way that you and I might both tend to mention it, even if this happened twenty three years from now.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay. So next year, I definitely mention it if he.
0: Any point next year.
1: I think any point next year. Yes.
0: Uh huh.
1: If he comes to spring training the year after that, and he has if he has a normal healthy season next year and a regular workload for a starter and then gets hurt the following year uh, i I might still mention it
0: i think think, i I definitely think think i think
1: i would mention it yeah probably any any point during that year two years after i mean it's not out of the question that it could have an effect two years on we we don't know whether it has an effect ever but if it Is conceivable that it could have an effect And it's conceivable that it could have an effect Two years on But would I mention it I don't think I would mention it If he's gotten through two Fully healthy seasons with normal workloads I don't think I would mention it Although Man I don't know like It would be tempting just to mention it for a really long time Just because he's a guy who Made such a big deal out of Or his agent made such a big deal out of The possibility that he could get hurt that if he ever gets hurt will say something i feel like
0: I, yeah but more that would i think that what you're kind of describing is more than mention like the as a as an observer of baseball you know that people are talking about this and you're you'll mention that people are talking about it you'll you'll probably in fact refute the mentions of it yeah and that stage mm-hmm. at some stage like you would be refuting and still mentioning it at like long after you would personally put any stock in it I, I agree I think that um, and as long as he were healthy if, if he didn't become if it didn't become sort of a thing starting next year where he's missing two weeks here and there or you're hearing little whispers of, of forearm soreness before the big injury uh, then I, I think that two years is the max by year three uh, you would not mention it okay
1: all right do you want to do your disappointing play index
0: sure I I uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I don't think I've ever done this before. Uh, if I have, podcasts free. <laughs> All right. So uh, I wanted to see who the all-time uh, best pickoffers were relative to box. Okay? Because it's easy. Like, like, there are guys who have great pickoff moves mm-hmm. and get pickoffs, and their pickoff moves are box. Mm-hmm. And like R. A. Dickey's pickoff move is a balk, and Johnny Cueto's pickoff move is a balk, and that I think that's good strategy. Uh, the uh, the uh, very often uh, repeated by me on this podcast bit of wisdom that if you're not getting to the airport, if you're never missing a plane, you're too early, you know. Mm-hmm. So good, yes, you should. That's cool to have some balks if it gets you the pickoffs. This is not a moral judgment. However, some guys get pickoffs without a balk move, and I wondered who the all timers in this are. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I looked at uh, player careers since 1989. I had to do 89. 89. Do, you, do, do you know why I had to do 89? No. 1988 was the year of the balk. Oh right, yeah. And they basically uh, they they sent out orders to yeah. umpires to enforce. A particular part of the balk rule and guys were balking like 30 40 times yeah <laughs> it was just ridiculous this oh such a mess and so then they went well we're not doing that anymore and so they undid the year of the balk mm-hmm. and um and it was uh never a problem again so i couldn't start in 88 would have messed everything up mm-hmm. so uh the answer is that uh, the clear well it's not the cl- it's not the cl- it is mathematically the clear winner. But I think that we should probably uh, hedge a little bit. But the mathematically clear winner is Kirk Reeder, mm. who had 30 pickoffs and never balked. Wow. Which is pretty good. Yeah. All right. So uh, so he's the max for the no balk group. Justin Thompson had 18. Drew Smiley is 18 if you want something <laughs> that we can start monitoring. He is active <laughs> and could pursue this record. Uh, so he has 14 and no balks. Tommy Malone has eleven. He's active. Nathan Ivaldi has ten, and he's active and right-handed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so those are good ones. Uh, and uh, Araldis Chapman has seven pickoffs huh. without a balk. I didn't. Uh, I would love to see Araldis Chapman's pickoff. Yeah, I might. In fact, I might. I might look that up. So, um, so those are the no balk guys. If you want, though, to start getting guys who have more pickoffs and an extremely low rate of wa- of balks. Uh, Mark Mulder had 36 with one box, hmm. uh, and then you can go higher still. Terry Mulholland had 48 and three box, which is of course a lower ratio but uh, higher volume. Uh, and then to get to the really elite, you have uh, Andy Pettit, who edges Mark Burley in ratio with 98 pickoffs in his career and only 11 box, which is amazing. Because Andy Pettit always balked. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then on the uh, the flip side, the reverse of this, uh, if you want the guys who are just hopelessly balking, the probably the champ is is one of two. They're not the numbers aren't as extreme because it's hard to balk that much. So instead, you just don't ever pick anybody off. Uh, but uh, Carl Pavano had 16 balks and three pickoffs. So. <laughs> uh Wow. The reverse. So he's got the mo basically the most box for three or fewer pickoffs. And the perfectest balker is Scott Feldman, who has nine box and has never picked a guy off.
1: Wow. So you'd think he'd be a candidate for a Leicester. He should just stop throwing over there.
0: Mm, yeah. If you're curious, the uh the most box, period, without worrying about ratio at all. Uh, is Randy Johnson? Hmm. Randy Johnson, thirty-three box, fifty-eight pickoffs. Ted Lilly has the most box for anybody who had more box than pickoffs. Uh huh. How many? Uh, and uh, twenty-nine box and twenty-two pickoffs. And I'm going to I'm going to uh, go all the way back to 1950 and see who the box champion is. Okay. Uh, for just a second. And so this will bring in the 1988 data uh steve carlton 90 box twice as many as anybody else the all-time balker steve carlton
1: wow how many pickoffs?
0: 146 which is also a lot yeah all right i'm i'm now going to whatever you say next mm-hmm. uh, make you're gonna keep researching i'm gonna keep watch i'm gonna be looking up uh Aroldis chapman pickoff
1: uh-huh and then i'm gonna I'm gonna rest my case whatever point I make and then you're gonna go right into describing what Heraldus Chapman's pickoff move looks like.
0: It's happened before.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well if I start my next question, I'll have to repeat it once you're done looking at Eroldis Chapman's pickoff move.
0: You could just wait a minute. I'm just watching an ad and then I'm gonna watch I, I'm guessing it's not gonna be that interesting. Yeah, anywhere. he's probably
1: not gonna do a somersault.
0: <laughs> okay. Huh. That's yeah. It's nothing. It's he's got a little bit of energy to it. It you know he he has he gears up. He's got a very uh, was it 102 miles per hour. He does throw hard. He yeah. does throw it over there hard. But Chapman's got a lot of got a lot of kind of energy in his leg kick when he when he pitches. And so it is somewhat like misleading because it it looks like more effort than the normal pickoff throw uh, leg kick. Anyway, not that interesting. Okay, go ahead. You can. You're safe.
1: Okay. All right.
0: Well, it's actually a bad pickoff move. I mean, he's leaning from the very first. Hmm. So yeah. Maybe people
1: okay. just don't expect Rolls Chapman to throw over.
0: Yeah, maybe.
1: Okay. Sam says, I saw a brief mention on another site about Dandicat's tendency to make big signings late in the offseason. Nelson Cruz stands out with an admonition that other teams may be well-positioned to play the waiting game this year. The implication seems to be that the later a player signs, the less money they take. Indeed, I think some rather large signings, Cano, Fielder, have happened early in the offseason when teams jump to take guys off the market. Yet I've often read that Boris prefers to wait for the market to develop and allow more teams to get in on the bidding. Can,
0: Can you repeat that? What did he say about Cano and Fielder? That they were early signings? They were late signings. Fielder was a late signer. Fielder
1: signing. was a very late signer. Can-
0: Cano yeah. was fine. Cano was normal-ish. Yeah. But Fielder was a Fielder was extremely late.
1: Yeah, it's true. I can see some sense in both ideas. If there's a clear best free agent at a position such as Cano, maybe the team has to pay a premium to sign their guy early in the offseason. Yet, even in a year like this, with 20 qualifying offer-worthy players and three ace-starting pitchers, maybe if a team waits while well, Price and Cueto sign elsewhere they would have to pay even more in years or dollars for Granky. Of course GMs can help themselves by being flexible about where they improve their team, but if you're starting third baseman or shortstop is Will Middlebrooks, or you end up with five number one starters like Miley Porcello and Buck Nasty, you are delusional and soon to be out of a job if you upgrade your corner outfield instead of your areas of need. What do you think? Is there a consistent game theory advantage to signing players early or late in the season? This is a place to cite some research that was done about that a few years ago now. So this is in the Providence Journal in November of 2012, done by podcast listener and excellent beat writer, Brian McPherson. He wrote then, he did a study of 2007 through, I guess, 2011 off-seasons, and he wrote Almost 400 players have signed close to 550 free agent contracts since the end of the 2007 season. In that span, the average free agent signed before January 1st has been worth an average of 0.86 war per season over the life of his contract. The average free agent signed after January 1st has been worth an average of 0.92 war per season over the life of the contract. What about the price? Before January 1st, teams have paid an average of $5.52 million. To obtain one war's worth of production from the free agents they've signed, after January 1st, teams have paid an average of 3.6 million dollars per one war of production they've received. So he wrote. In other words, a team with 30 million to spend on the free agent market could expect to get 5.4 war if it emptied its piggy bank before the end of December. If it waited until January, it could expect to get 8.3 war for the same 30 million, and that. Seems like maybe a study that we should repeat every few years, just to make sure that it wasn't a quirk of the, whatever, 2011 to 2000, or 2007 to 2011 period. Maybe it wouldn't hold up if you ran it every year, but maybe it would, and I don't know of anyone who's rerun it since then, so that is the best and most recent answer I have. I don't know, it it could vary depending on the kind of player you want, maybe, or depending on the free agent market in a given year. But that's the best answer we have, that it's more efficient to wait and get whatever is left after the new year.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, that is that is what I would have expected that to find. And that is, I think, I, my guess is that it is mostly true throughout all off-seasons. But you're right, it can be repeated. But this is a, a situation where the kind of complaint that sometimes people have about War, which is like, what is a replacement level? How can you tell me what a replacement level is? And normally that complaint is like kind of dumb and doesn't understand what replacement level means. But in this case, it really is the case that uh, you're getting more wins in a vacuum or more production in a vacuum, but you no longer have really the choice to target the spots in your roster that most need updating. Right? Like mm-hmm. if you if you wait until the last month to sign your guys, then you can probably get comparable guys for cheaper, but not necessarily the ones that you want and not necessarily the ones that fit your roster and not necessarily the ones that are going to have be the best upgrade over the things you already have. And so in a, in a way, you can say certainly for the player, one thing a player can take from that study is sign early, right? Yeah. Even if Even if it's a little less than you're hoping for, the market is probably not likely moving in your direction, but rather away from you. And you have to just kind of accept, well, that didn't go as well as I'd hoped. Get it while you can. Yeah. Uh, so from the player's perspective, good intel, uh, reliable intel. From the team's perspective, though, that isn't necessarily at all to say that you should wait. Right. That's true. All
1: right. And last question we got, well, I'll, I'll do one if baseball were different, how different would it be kind of question. It's from Jared, who says, How would the game of inches be different if it were the game of centimeters? In other words, what if we had always used the metric system, given our love of round numbers? If there is magic in the bases being 90 feet apart, maybe baseball would never have caught on, because what are the chances that we would have landed on 27.432 meters between bases Maybe it would have been 25 meters or 30 meters. How many famous ball and strike calls would be different if the strike zone were 43 centimeters instead of 43.18? Would an entire class of relievers have been less special because it doesn't sound as impressive to be able to throw 160.934 kilometers per hour? Bat sizes would likely be different, etc., etc. So how different would baseball be if we use the metric system?
0: I would be interested in hearing from some of the cricket listeners, as well as maybe some of the soccer/slash football mm-hmm. listeners, to know whether there is a round number fetish generally in non-American sports.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
0: American football, huge round number fetish, right? Yeah. You know, your hundred-yard rushers, your thousand-yard receivers. Um, basketball, round number fetish. Your double-double, maybe the most, maybe the most round number obsessed <laughs> I, uh, statistical achievement in all of sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, he got three round numbers. The only way that could be more round number focused is if you if it had to be a like a 10 double. Like, like you had, wow, double figures and 10 stats. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure they would love to get there. Uh, and I don't know if... Uh, so I don't know if that's just strictly an American thing or not. It is kind of odd that... Or it would be odd that Americans would be so round number focused when we choose the uh the system of measurement that eschews round numbers generally uh-huh. right i mean the metric system is the ultimate round number system for measurement mm-hmm. it's all tens and hundreds and thousands <laughs> uh and uh you know at foot is 12 inches that's not round no <laughs> feet themselves are relatively round maybe that's what we were going for
1: mm-hmm. uh
0: but not the 12 inches part of it so um so I, I'm i not prepared to answer this question At all uh, <laughs> I, I am wondering whether In general whether I don't know I'm trying to sort of figure out whether Not so much in these individual cases But as a general more cultural thing It made the sports fan Depend on round numbers Because yeah. the measurements themselves Are relatively round
1: Yeah I'm looking at w- Wikipedia page for football pitch And there are A lot of round numbers here, but not maybe as many. Not all pitches are the same size, although the preferred size for many professional team stadiums is 105 by 68 meters, or 115 yards by 74 yards. So that's not particularly the... I mean, the goal dimensions, the inner edge of the post must be 7.32 meters apart, although that is 8 yards apart. So maybe it just predates meters. And the lower edge of the crossbar must be 2.44 meters, which is eight feet above the ground. So there might be some mixing of of units just because these sports are so old. But uh, I mean, we can conclude that baseball would be different in that you probably wouldn't end up with 27.432 meters between bases. Well, but you would, you would end up with something different. I don't know slightly whether slightly different. Yeah. yeah.
0: It wouldn't mm-hmm. be exact, but, like, it's not as though 90 and 60 feet are 50 and 100, for instance. Like, right. they already chose somewhat unorthodox. So, yeah, you there's a pretty good chance that there'd be something you could measure a little more easily. Like, 27.5 meters would be almost exactly 90 feet. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that would have been considered too hard to uh, to uh, replicate Mm -hmm. Uh, early on in baseball and if they would have picked something even rounder than that, but, uh, you're probably right that there'd be some, you know, at least some inches difference that would obviously have an effect, but not one that I care that much about. Um, and the question is whether they would have felt compelled to make it either 30 meters or 25 meters, which would then have a, a a fairly large effect. I mean, then we're talking about 10 feet in one direction. Yeah. But Again, like, they already chose 90, which is not 100. And they already chose 60 feet 6 inches, which is not even 60. Yeah. And so I don't think we should necessarily insist that the uh, originators of the game were compelled to some round number. Uh, Yeah. I wonder... Yeah.
1: So... And it's possible that it would balance out. Like, everything would be a little bit different, but you'd have some things that would favor the batter or the runner and other things that would favor the pitcher like maybe the pitcher's mound would be a teeny tiny bit closer to home plate but home plate would be you know a a teeny bit smaller or something so it would you'd arrive at the same sort of equilibrium
0: i want to address this again uh, in a later episode but first i do want to find out whether in cricket uh, you see an emphasis on round numbers where, there, where it's fairly arbitrary. Like the ones listed in baseball, the 100 miles per hour, the 100 pitches per start, those are things where there's, there's no real difference between 100 and 102 or 198, but we obsess over the round numbers because they're round. Mm-hmm. And we know those in baseball, there's a bunch of them. Uh, and I'm curious if there's any, if there's a similar uh, set of examples in cricket, either in statistical accomplishment or in player assessment or even in field dimensions uh, that would suggest that this is universal and not American. And until I know that, I can't make it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we
1: have lots of cricket listeners. There's an entire cricket splinter group of our Effectively Wild Facebook group, so I'm sure someone will let us know. That is it for today. You can continue to send us questions at podcasts at baseballperspectives.com rate and review and subscribe to the show on itunes just mention the facebook group at facebook.com groups slash effectively wild and you can support our sponsor the play index by going to baseballreference.com using the coupon code vp and getting the discounted price of 30 dollars on a one-year subscription we will be back